But today we're going to finish up this anxiety series, and the title of my message today is Final Words to a Church About Ministry to the Anxious. Final Words uh, to the Church About Ministry to the Anxious. Um, So remember, we've looked at Jesus' perspective on worry and anxiety. We've looked at Peter's perspective, Paul's perspective. We looked at others' perspective, okay, like from uh, from the angels, from the body of Christ. Now we're looking at how, as we kind of cap this off, how do we help each other when it comes to this ministry of anxiousness to each other? And it's Paul's final word to the church. So we're going to look in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians today. You can take your Bible and turn there. Okay, do this. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians. So this is a final, our final message on worry and anxiety uh, during this season. And I, I would say this, um, the, this is Paul's final word really on, on even this subject matter when he's talking to the Thessalonians. Now, uh, what he's talking to the Thessalonians in the context of the, the whole entire book of First and Second Thessalonians is not just about worry and anxiety. However, in his final concluding statements in First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, we have some indication that he discusses that subject matter. It, it must have been something they were concerned about. In fact, even, even when you look at like First Thessalonians, when he talks to them about not being worried about what happens if someone died before you, and he explains the resurrection of Christ and how those who, who have died before will be resurrected. He was, com- he was comforting them with some concerns. This seems to be a church that often was tempted to be concerned. And so he addresses this. I want to read two texts for you out of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and, and then I'll, I'll expound on it on, and, and tie in how worry and anxiety, his final message of which this is our final message on worry and anxiety. Do this. Uh, could you stand in just reverence to the reading of God's word? Man, I've not got to say that in a while. That's pretty cool. Would you take your copy of God's word and look at 1 Thessalonians and look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and we'll start at verse 12. We ask you, brothers, the church, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. I'll say something about that in a minute, but that's really not the thesis of our text. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now do this. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians at the very end and look over at verse 16. May the Lord... This is 2 Thessalonians 3.16. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way the Lord be with you all. Let's pray over his word once again. Thank you for the word. It is the authority of our life. It helps us to know what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right, to be thoroughly equipped for disciple-making. And today we look at some of Paul's final statements and we catch a couple breadcrumbs of something he said to the church that helps us know how to do ministry to those who are struggling with worry and anxiety. It helps us to know even how to do ministry to each other in general, all to all types of people in the body. So thank you for it. We trust you in it. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much. So here's what we have. <clears throat> but, but verse 14, he has three groups of people in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. He has three groups. He says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. He, three groups that he's addressing. Three different types of groups in the church. Three different ways you're to approach these people. Okay? I want you to notice in the text he says, encourage the faint-hearted. Now, that is going to be one I'm going to hone in on here in a minute. But before I do that, I just want to do some background work. You okay with some background work? This is going to be, if you, if you don't like studying the Bible, you're not going to like what I'm about to you know, go through. But I just want to cover some things in the text. But really, today I want to get to this idea of encourage the faint-hearted and how that ties into his final words to those that could be anxious. And then looking over at 2 Corinthians 3.16 about him praying for peace for these Thessalonian people. But before I get there, I just do want to point out a couple things. Can I take a pause on the thesis of this message and just give you a little sidestep, kind of a purposeful rabbit trail? Are y'all okay with that? I'm going to do it anyways, but it'd just be cool if you said it was okay. So, verse 12. I just want to point out a couple things. <coughs> he says this, We ask you, brothers, 
to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, um, they're talking about someone typically in a pastoral kind of format, right? Someone who's in some kind of spiritual authority. I want to point out a couple things to you that sometimes, I'm just, because it's around here in the text, I just want you to notice a couple things before we even get to what it means to uh, encourage the faint-hearted or admonish the idle or help the weak. Now, I just want to point out something that sometimes I think um, uh, the church body and people don't know. He says, we ask you, brothers, so he's speaking to the whole church of, of the Thessalonians, to respect those who labor among you. Now, what's interesting is this. That word labor, it means to work to the point of exhaustion, to work basically to the point of burnout. Here's what's interesting about all that. It, it, a good pastor, it, here's the deal right now. I have had, I've heard so much about what a church expects out of a pastor. And a lot of people, and, and even it's really about our seeker-sensitive kind of model, a lot of churches expect that their pastor would be like a CEO and that, that it would grow their church into be a mega church. And there's nothing wrong with that if God does that. But that's not really the goal of your pastor. Like the, the, a good pastor is not just a guy who studies, walks into his office, preaches, and can never be touched with the feeling and infirmities of his church body. Or a good pastor is a, a laboring pastor is not a pastor who like everybody just pats him on the back and thinks everything he does is great, which I'm okay with that. But he says this, brothers, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. One of the things about that word labor is the Greek word that's, that's used there. It's this word kopia. And kopia means that you work to such extreme fatigue that it almost burns you out. Like this is what pastoral ministry looks like. And I hear a lot of people kind of say like, man, I want to be a pastor. I think if God has given you that desire, go for it. If you are qualified, go for it. But I want you to understand something. Don't be a lazy pastor. If you're, if you're really an honest and hardworking pastor, this work should be such a laborious thing, it exhausts you. It fatigues you. And in fact, this is why, do you know some of the highest death rates in the world are pastors? They typically burn out and die early, okay? They, they typically, if they live a long life and you look at them, they look like a president after he's been in office for eight years. You ever done that? Looked at a president the first year and then year eight? They look haggard, all right? I mean, it's just like, why would anybody want to do this job? So this is what a good pastor does, good ministry. And notice in the text, he says this, they labor among you to fatigue and are over you in the Lord and they admonish you. That word admonish is the Greek word nutheteo. Here's what that word means. Teach, instruct, and then sometimes if they need it, you warn them. You warn them, okay? And counsel. Depending on the context, it means teach, instruct, warn, counsel, which is interesting. Sometimes people think that pastoral ministry is about, hey, you just preach a sermon and you, you don't counsel us. You just preach a sermon and you don't, you know... If you see something in my life, you don't you say anything. Or if, so, if, you're, if someone's discipling you or you're discipling somebody, you're in some kind of spiritual authority over somebody, and you think, man, I see something in their life, but I can't say anything to them. I'm not supposed to. And actually, I would say, like, no, actually, the scriptures say when you're in spiritual authority, you, you should admonish somebody. Now, it also has, always has to be with the right heart and spirit and with patience, and we'll see in the text, but it says the word admonish is nutheteo. That means that sometimes you instruct, sometimes you actually actually warn them. Here's what I've noticed. Sometimes in the church at large, the church, I'm not talking just our church, I'm talking at large, people get upset when people from pastors to disciple makers speak honest truth into a person's life and they get offended by it and they run from that disciple maker. And what I would say is this, no, that's actually what the text says is supposed to happen. Even when you're a disciple maker, if, if need be, there should be times, there, there will be times of admonishment. And if you're in some kind of discipling relationship, church body, online, you're watching this and you're not even a part of our church. If you have a, a pastoral ministry in your church that they will lovingly admonish and they will teach and instruct on hard subjects, they will correct you, they will warn you, they will counsel you, that is actual pastoral ministry. But real pastoral ministry is not just a guy who is aloof. Which, by the way, here's the second thought I want you to understand. This means you should be able to call on your, those in spiritual authority. You should be able to call on pastors and elders. Sometimes when like people call my phone, they'll say things like, Oh, I'm so, 
I don't want to bother you. And I think to myself, like, well, I guess they're thinking that pastors are just supposed to preach sermons and that's it. Like, no, we're to do shepherding kind of work. And, and people think, like, man, this is, this is putting you out. Like, yeah, that's what the text says it's supposed to be. If I'm not worn out from doing this job, then I'm probably not actually doing this job. Nothing about... Have you ever studied the life of a shepherd in the Scriptures? I mean, the life of a shepherd, or even watch the life of a shepherd. It is a laborious task that's... It's like you get one sheep safe, and then there's another sheep you got to watch out for going astray. It's like, it, it's, it's like trying to control a flood in your house. You ever had a flood in your house where like that one hole happened, you saw the water coming, and you tried to get like towels and control it before you knew it. It was going like every which direction, and you felt labored to fatigue trying to control that. That's what pastoral ministry is like. That's what discipling ministry even here, we're, we're all called to be disciple makers and what might be happening in your soul, and I'm going to hear this people online, is when you're making disciples, sometimes it gets so difficult and you think to yourself, it's supposed to be easier than this. Why is this so fatiguing? Why, is, why do I have to gin up so much energy just to engage with this woman, to engage with these men? And I would tell you, well, the scriptures say, that it's a laborious thing. It will exhaust you to the point of fatigue. Now, I don't say that to be discouraging. I say that to say, don't be surprised by it. Like, there's nothing about making disciples that's an easy thing. But I can tell you this, you'll experience God's goodness in the midst of making disciples. So, but by the way, this is not part of the thesis of the text. I'm just giving you bonus. Don't y'all like bonus? This is like my personal stimulus check to you, Okay. All right, and if you be real good, I'm going to come around with that second round of stimulus check that we might get, okay? Are you all with me so far? Okay. I don't know if that one's going to happen. I just, I saw that the other day, and I'm thinking like, man, man, the, 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 you know, the money tree out back must be doing really good right now. So, like, I'm excited about it, aren't you? Do y'all, do y'all miss my weird sense of humor? Okay. <laughs> okay. Now look at verse 13. Here's the response. If you're a person being discipled, you're part of a body. However that works, it says, here's your response to those in spiritual authority over you. You are to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. You're to recognize the hard work that they do among you and be at peace among yourselves. Which means this. Like wherever you see peace in a church body, in a discipleship group, in a house church, or wherever you see it, peace in that body... You see, it's because you see people in that body are esteeming highly the hard, laborious work of those in, in spiritual authority over them. And there's this peacefulness that happens in that church. And this peacefulness actually takes away from the worry and anxiety. The one thing that I know, I've been in pastoral ministry over 21 years, and with disciple makers, church planters, house church planters, house church pastors, like legacy model church pastors, I mean, all of us pastors, here's the one thing that I do know. If there is ever something that tempts us to worry, it's not the money of the church. It's not, it's, it's not all the other catchings of the church. It's when the body itself is, is, is factioning and is not at peace. That's the thing that tempts leadership to worry at times. That's the thing that makes it hardest on them. And I love in the text that he says, be at peace among yourselves. And he says, this happens when you esteem those in spiritual authority highly and you recognize that they are laboring themselves to a point of exhaustion. Now, that's all free. I want to give you that from the text. Now, here's what he says. After you've done that and that peace that, that you get to experience, now let me get to the thesis of our text right here. He wants to give some final words on how the church responds to each other and particularly how to handle those ministry to those that are prone to worry anxiety, those that are what are called faint-hearted. But before I do that, I want to go ahead and give you another round of stimulus check, right? And let me just tell you a little about, about these other two groups that are in our text. If you look at our text, verse 14, he says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Now, I'm going to get to encourage the faint-hearted, but just because it's in the text, I don't want to overstep it. There are, there are three groups in verse 14 that he tells us how to do ministry to them, right? One is the idle, and the other is the weak. Can I just tell you about those two groups, and then I want to focus on the faint-hearted, kind of in this whole message series on worry and anxiety, okay? Let me just tell you about uh, warn the unruly or the idle, and then help the weak. Those are two other groups, right? 
So let's look at it. First off, uh, I want you to look at, um, and by the way, I haven't even been using my notes, so I'm like way, I've got to turn some pages and catch up. I might not even use these notes today. <clears throat> That's a dangerous thing. All right, number four, verse 14. He says, admonish the idol. Now, I have an ESV version. If you have an NASB, I want you to notice that word is not idle, but that word is unruly. Now, the thought comes to you, a person goes like, wait, wait, wait. Why does your ESV say, admonish the idol, but my NASB says, admonish the unruly? And if you have a King James, it says unruly. If you have a New Living Translation, it says lazy. If you have an NIV, <laughs> it says idle and disruptive. It basically says idle and unruly. Of course, the NIV can get away with that because it's more of a thought-for-thought translation, not a literal. So they can kind of put in those words to kind of give some clarity but what's interesting is, is in, uh, translation guys struggle over, you can see whether to use the word idle or whether to use the word unruly. Um, it's very interesting. And this is one particular group of people. So it's important that we understand what this means because it says this particular group of people need to actually be admonished, nuthateo. They need to be instructed. They at times need to be warned. They need to be counseled. They need to be spoken to from God's word. They need to be pointed about what God's word says about about how man should respond. Well, let's go a little bit deeper with that, with that word. So the word that's used there in Greek is atikos. Now, it's interesting. Most of the time when that word atikos is used, it actually means unruly. But you might be wondering, well, why is it in your ESV say idle? Well, I'll give you a, a reasoning. Now, for all of you, it's really great now is we all have technology, and most of us can look up a Greek definition. But what you need to understand when you look up a Greek definition and you see multiple different definitions you don't get to just kind of look through there and go "Ooh, i like the definition number four and that's the one that's gonna and you come up with all this weird interpretation the 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 one you use is the one that fits the context the direct context the overall context and sometimes that's what translators use as they're interpreting something they're going to go okay what is the overall context now when you look at first thessalonians uh you'll you'll notice something for instance look at chapter four verse eleven in chapter 4, verse 11, uh, it says, he says that you would aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you. So some, some who would, like the NASB translators, would look at this and go, hey, this word can mean idle or unruly, but we're going to pick unruly because it seems like in this, uh, in this book he talks about living quietly Minding your own affairs, which just has this idea of like unruliness, disorderliness. Like, like he's warning, he's telling them like, don't get disorderly with life. Now, what's also interesting on the flip side, those translators that decide to use the word idle, what they'll say is, haha, yeah, but look in chapter four, verse eleven. It says, and to work with your hands, which means if you're not working with your hands, what must you be probably be idle or lazy? Okay. Are y'all with me so far? Am I just like totally going into like, this is like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. Okay. It, this, is, this, is, this is stimulus round two for you guys, all right? It might pass the Senate. So what we're going to look at here is, is what we find is there's two groups. So what do you do with this? What a predicament. Which, by the way, if you were to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 through 11... Paul clearly warns the Thessalonian church not to be idle. So what, what you find is even those translators that go, wait a minute, for this word of, of, of admonish the idle or unruly, the translators that decide like the ESV to use idle, they'll say, wait a minute, Paul wrote two letters though. And in the second letter, he clearly overemphasizes this idea of laziness and idleness. So let's, let's take the consistency of both second and first Thessalonians and decide that We'll use that Atticus word here in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We'll call it idle. Okay, you with me so far? Like, let me read for you if you were to look at 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 11. He says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus. This is why some translators decide to use idle. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according to the traditions that you receive from us. For you yourselves know that you ought to imitate us because... We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. 
It is not because we do not have the right, but to give you uh, in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, uh, not busy at work, but they're busybodies. So there's this direct warning in 2 Thessalonians, which leads the translators to go, wait a minute, actually, I see more evidence that that, that definition, although could be unruly, we're going to go with idleness. So do you see, by the way, don't you want to be a Bible uh, translator now? Do you see the predicament these guys go through when they come across a word and they're trying to, in their committees, decide what word they're going to use? Now, of course, that's the brilliance of, of I guess, the NIV crowd. It's a dynamic equivalent, which is more of a thought for thought, which they have a lot of liberty to put both. That's why they do it. So here's the thing. Like You're probably thinking, like, okay, great, Nick. Did you just tell us all that just to show off? Like, like ooh, Nick. You know, good for you with your little Bible programs, right? Great. I told you that for a reason, and here it is. I think there's a little bit of truth in both. I think there's some obscurity with it could be both, and you see evidence even in both texts. I mean, even when you look in Second Thessalonians, he says, For we hear that there are some among you who walk in idleness, not at work, but they're busybodies, which, which means... You're, you're unruly if you're a busybody. You're sinning. You're, you're out of line. Why do I think there's both? Because I, I see, in, in all my observation of people, and when I look in the Word, I see this direct kind of correlation between idleness and unruliness, right? Laziness and disruptive behavior. They almost seem to go together, right? I mean, like, like this is why even when you look at 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-11, a person who is idle, which basically, to know their context... They basically knew the Lord was coming, so everybody stopped working, thinking like, well, the Lord's about to be back. It doesn't matter, and since it doesn't matter, I mean, like, we're not going to go to work anymore. And Paul was like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, we worked when you were among you. You should work. You should work and watch towards the heavens and realize that he's coming back. So, like, for instance, if, if you, there's some people right now who, who go, well, the coronavirus is a sign that the Lord's coming back. And he could be and it could not, right? Uh, you'd be very cautious on the conclusions you draw. Be very cautious on... Uh, everything you watch on YouTube thinking that someone has figured out the magic potion, right? I will tell you this. If someone tells you they know when the day the Lord's going to happen, that whatever day they say is probably not really going to happen because Jesus strictly warned that no man knows the day nor the hour. But I will tell you that, that, that and like, for instance, there's some people that in the midst of this, they've been charging up their credit cards and spending every bit of resource thinking, like, well, the Lord's coming back anyway, so it doesn't matter. And I would go, no, that's not what Paul wants, us, wants them to do. But notice, their idleness in the end of verse 11 has resulted in busybodiness. Meaning this, wherever there's laziness, there is disruptive behavior, unruliness. And wherever you see unruliness, you'll actually see a laziness and an idleness. So I think the reason it's such a difficult word to translate is because really, um, I, don't think, I, don't, I don't bash on the ESV for, pe- for picking idle or the NASB for going unruly or for the NA- NIV translators to try to throw both together. What I understand is this, where you see one, you really see others. Like, for instance, if I, even in my own life, even in our lives, if we're lazy with the scriptures, right, we'll be lazy with the spiritual disciplines of life, right? If we're lazy with, with, with intentionally trying to find people far from God with the gospel message, we'll be lazy with our evangelism, all right? And if we're lazy with our evangelism, it's because we're lazy to obey. And if we're walking in jealousy and anger and sinful lust, it's more than likely directly connected to there's not a habit of spiritual worship day in, day out in our life from reading the scriptures, prayer, interceding for people. Do you understand? Like laziness and unruliness, they usually kind of go together. Where you find one, you're going to find the other. So that's why I think in the text it's so hard for translators, but I see, I don't see any judgment. I just see a connection. Now, now that you, you know, kind of have like that Bible college education now, here's the real deal. Look what he says you do with these people. It says, do what with them? Admonish them. Now, the word used right there is that word nutheteo, which means instruct. And when you instruct them, it means like you instruct from God's word. Like, how do we help people who are unruly and idle, we instruct them patiently with God's word. Now, also, sometimes that's a warning from God's word. That's a warning for their life. We, we counsel them. It's called nithiteo. 
By the way, it's what elders do. But also, look what he says in verse 13. We urge you, brothers. So this is not only a pastoral ministry, but this is also a people ministry of the church. In fact, as a pastor, how do I know that my people are counseling each other, warning each other, instructing each other well? I don't have as much of that to do. There's not as many spaces for me to do that. They're doing it already with each other. Nothateo. Um, by the way, this is, this is a sign of a great church. Um, this is a sign of a church that you want to be a part of this kind of church. And, and if you're in a church and people will admonish you, and, and by the way, look at verse 14. He says, admonish the idol, and at the end of it he says, be patient with them all. Meaning that when you do offer admonishment, don't be a jerk about it. Like, be patient with it, which means long-suffering. Be as patient as God is with you as you offer that kind of admonishment. Now, here's what I see Christians do sometimes. When they warn someone, when they instruct, when they counsel, they kind of walk in like a bull in a china closet and just get real forceful. But that's not how you actually admonish people. When, when you warn people, when you admonish them, your, your heart must be broken over your own sin first. You must be looking at the log in your own eye. So that you can offer the speck, so you can take the speck out of your brothers. So we find that he says you've got to admonish the idol. Now, people in this category, they 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 tend to struggle a lot. These are not new believers that when it says admonish the idol, these aren't people who are new to the faith. These are people that know better. And they need us to speak into their lives. And and by the way, this is the great thing. If anybody ever gently and patiently and patiently admonishes you, that is your real friend. You know, I've heard people say, I love my kids, so I don't discipline them. But you know the scriptures say? If you don't love your kid, what do you actually do? You hate them. That's what the scriptures say, right? Hate them. People say, spare the rod, spoil the child. That's actually not in scripture. Spare the rod, hate your child, right? If you don't discipline your children, you, you, you actually hate them. It means you love yourself more than actually helping them. I would say this. For any of us in the body of Christ, if you have people, pastors, disciple makers, people in spiritual authority in the body of Christ, and they will patiently and gently admonish, warn, instruct you from God's word, that is your real friend. The last thing you want to do is run from those people. Those are the actual real friends. The people that just always agree with you and never disagree with you, they may not be your real friend. They may just they they may be more concerned that you would like them than they would actually with helping you with the truth. Do y'all catch me on that? So he says, warn the idol. By the way, here's more bonus for you guys. You might be thinking, Nick, are you ever going to get to like <laughs> help the faint-hearted? This is going to be another week. I just know it. By the way, this has been really difficult because no one has been in here. There's been so like I've I don't know if you've noticed. I've just been preaching freely. I've just been like. I didn't even look at the clock. I didn't even aware that a clock even exists. There's one now, but I still don't even know it's there. It's like a mirage, okay? It's, it's, a, it's, it's fake water. <laughs> so. But this messes me up seeing these masks, man. I cannot see your faces, but this is cool. By the way, can I give you some insight also? A lot of y'all know that I, got a, I have a counseling degree, and I do counseling. Like, if you want counseling from a biblical perspective... I went and got this degree because I believe pastors actually should counsel their people. So, like, I'm here and free of charge. You don't, that's just part of being a part of our body. But, but what's interesting is this. Sometimes people will say pastors shouldn't counsel. But I would say, actually, no. He says in the text, in verse 12, those that are over you admonish you. That word is the nithetail word. He says right here in verse 14 that we should admonish the idol. That word admonish is that nithetail word. That word means Instruct, warn, counsel. So I, I would say this. Um, you know the actual name for the kind of counseling I do? Guess what the name of it's called? Nuthetic counseling, right? That's the actual, the degree I got in, it's a, 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 they call it a biblical counseling degree, but the actual terminology of the degree is called a nuthetic biblical counseling degree. And, and which just means is this. A person who has that kind of degree, degree believes, in that kind of training, believes that God's word is the final authority and that God's word a long time ago was speaking to man's condition and has the right exclusive answers to man's condition and principle or precept, right? It, which, which, means, um, which means that this is something pastors should do. But not only that, in the text, is it only the pastors doing it or is it also the people? 
It's the people, right? I know you said it. I just couldn't hear it between your mask, right? But the people are actually to do this, which is interesting. People think the only people that can counsel are people that have a degree. Wrong. You know who is competent to counsel? Whoever's got this word. Whoever knows this word, whoever can patiently apply this word, that is the person that is most competent to counsel. Doesn't matter the amount of degrees, doesn't matter the amount of education. Listen, education's great. I love it. I've got it. I've gone and got back. I've gone and got more. I, I teach in a higher education kind of place, right? As a, as a, as a professor. I, I've, I do that. But, but nothing will replace this, actually. And by the way, that's the kind of counsel you want. And, back to, and by the way, I can also tell you this. When you go for counseling, two questions you always want to ask any counselor. You don't have to go to a counselor that's strictly a biblical and aesthetic counselor. Because uh, there's, there's counselors all over the place that are disguised as aesthetic biblical counselors. You'll just never know it. When you sit down with any kind of counselor, you ask them two questions. You ask them, is God's word the authority and is man a sinner? All right? You start with those two presuppositions. If that counselor cannot affirm that, I would not get counsel from that person. I'm just telling you. Because part of real true newthetic counseling is we start with the idea that God's word is sufficient. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It means the Word of God helps you know what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right. And then it says something interesting in verse 17 of 2 Timothy 3. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The man of God may be complete, equipped. God's Word claims that it exclusively can equip you for every good work. It can complete you for every good work. So I tell people, Whatever counsel you go see, whether it's a pastor, whether it's someone discipling you, whether you're paying somebody for it, doesn't matter. Make sure that they believe the scriptures are the final authority. If that's not true, be very skeptical about what you're being told. And number two is this. Here's what makes neuthetic biblical counseling different from other forms and true good counseling. Most forms of counseling start with a presupposition that everybody's a good person. So when they counsel you, the thought usually is you don't get a lot of neuthetailing. Because the thought is you're a good person and if you talk enough, you're just going to figure out the right answer because the right answer lies within you because you're a good person, right? Neuthetic biblical counseling doesn't believe that. You know the presupposition I start with? The word of God is a final authority. Then I start with, guess what? You're bad and you're far more worse than you ever think. And if you think you're bad, I'm worse than you. I'm the chief of sinners. But here's the great thing about that. That lets me know that the right answer doesn't lie within me. That lets me know that All the talking that I do, that doesn't mean I'm just going to magically arrive at the right answer because I'm intrinsically good. It means that I'm probably going to still arrive at the bad answer because I'm I'm way off base. I need something to guide me and focus me back to what God's standard of right and wrong is. So when you counsel, when you counsel somebody, when you go to counseling, the authority of God's word and start with man's a sinner and his greatest need is God. Now, once again, that was like stimulus check three, okay? So, man, we're, we're piling it on. We've got our own money tree back here behind the church. Now, I, I give you all this because it's just a part of the text. He says, this is how you admonish the idle. By the way, now look, he says, you also help the weak. Now, I'm going to get the faint-hearted, all right? I'm going to get to it. And if you're looking at that clock, you're thinking, well, um, you're running out of time. Well, maybe not, all right? You just go and take a breather, okay? Um, Go and join the deacons on the side who take a smoke break, right? Then you'll be okay, right? That, oh, we don't have deacons, so I guess we don't, we don't have that, that problem. That's kind of the joke growing up, wasn't it? I mean, did y'all... I remember one church I served in, that was kind of like in the old days of the 70s, they had a, uh, they had a smoking corner, and that was where all the deacons would go in between service to smoke, right? I, did y'all not grow up in any kind of churches like that? Well, good for y'all, right? It, it existed in some of our churches. Now... Do this. Look at the next group of people. There's three groups of people. I just talked about encourage the idle. I mean, admonish the idle, the unruly. I gave you all that. Now help the weak. I want to look at this group. And then we're going to get to the faint-hearted, which is the real thesis of our message. He says, help the weak. Now, this weak here, these are people who um, are morally weak to sin. They lack strength. They lack courage. It's hard for them to say no to sin. These people are typically your new followers to Jesus. These people are people who don't really know any better, haven't been discipled very well. Now, the 
admonish the idle and ruly. These are people who should know better. These are people who know the scriptures and have been exposed, but the help the weak. These are people who are new to the faith, don't know much about, haven't been discipled well. These people are very weak to sin in their life. And he says in the text, help these weak brothers. These are people who would fit into the category of being enslaved to sin. They have a lot of idolatry in their life. They have strongholds in their life. Now, our our kind of disease model, modern counseling system would call these people um, addicts, typically. Um, I, 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 nothing wrong with using that word, but sometimes I think people use that word and it makes them think that their addiction is a disease. And the Word of God describes controlling, idolatrous, stronghold actions very different. I like to describe people who are in those addictions as something that has a stronghold according to a biblical category. That gives you hope that that God gives you solutions for it. If you see it as just a biological disease only, I, I think you might, you, you might really have some issues. But this help the weak. The weak are people who are, who you could, you could categorize those people who fall in that addiction category. Or I like to use the word, biblical words. I like to use Bible words. I just like Bible words better. Like, like strongholds, idolatrous, enslavement to sin. Those are people who are weak. People who are dominated by sins in their life. People who can't seem to say no to sin. It says we should help these people. Now that word help, it, 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 it's two words together that kind of compound each other. The word that, that it says uh, for it is, is help. And that word help has this idea of go alongside them and speak to them, right? That's the, that's the help that you're going to actually offer them. You're going to help them. You're going to cling to them. You're going to devote yourself to them. You're going to be around them. You're, you're, even though it might be hard to do it, even though they're going to be exhausting, you're going to actually keep chasing and running after them because they're weak. They're totally different. With the idle and unruly, you admonish them. But with the weak, you help them. You cling to them. You, you, you pursue them quite a bit. You help them bear the burden. I think Galatians 6, 1 through 3 is the greatest text for this. Galatians 6, 1 through 3 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them. And the spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourselves, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. When it says bear one another's burdens, what it says is, someone's carrying a burden, it's too heavy, they're starting to slip, and they need you to bear that burden with them. They're weak. And they need someone to help them during that. Now that's another group in the church. People who are new to the faith. Haven't been discipled well. Don't know any better. They're weak and they need our help. And the help we offer them is more than just walking up and saying, this is what God wants you to do. The help is, this is what God wants you to do. And then the next day, this is what God wants you to do. And the next day it's like, hey, why don't you come and spend some time with me and watch how I worship God. Hey, why don't you come with me? Why don't you spend time with me like... Like you, you have to pursue and reach and reach and reach. That's what that word help means. You reach towards them. You, you cling towards them. Weak people don't have enough strength to do it on their own a lot of times. They, they need us to step in and help. Now, by the way, look at the end of verse 14. It says, all these things you do, be patient with them all. <laughs> That's the hardest thing. When you're trying to admonish the idle and ruly, what have you got to be? Patient. When you're trying to help the weak, got to be patient right you can't just be this thing of like they're new to christ they're weak and be like just get over it no man you got to cling to them and you got to labor hard by the word that word patience means long suffering and by the way when you look in the old testament when it talks about god's long suffering the hebrew littleness means god is long nosed right meaning like if you have a long nose it means that you can kind of like you ever been frustrated and you kind of, just to kind of, like, get through the moment, you kind of just take a deep breath, like, you know what I'm talking about? To kind of calm yourself, you know? If you're long nose, you can take a better breath. Well, that's what he says. Everything we do has to be done with patience. Okay, good news, everybody. I've now covered all the free, all the free stuff. These other two groups that I, now I want to get to the group I want to talk about, right? Look at all this extra stuff you got. Aren't you glad you put a mask on and came this morning and, and, Aren't you, you're not jealous in any way of everybody on Facebook Live that probably pushed, you know, pushed pause and took a potty break and pushed pause and got some more Coke Zero or some creme brulee coffee or, or whatever kind of, you know, or if you're more, you know, you're, you're, you know, or Folgers or whatever. 
Well, now here's the thing I want to focus on. This last group, this third group. And this is the group that we want to end this, this series with. He says, there's another group. He says, encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted. Everybody with me? Can you see this in the text? Encourage the faint-hearted. This is one group that, that, that fits in our message series. This word, faint-hearted. If you can look at that word, there's two compound words that come together. And it's this oligop, right? Good word, oligop. And sukos. That word oligop means small. That word sukos means soul. So the literal meaning of this faint-hearted means it's a person who is small-souled or small-hearted. It's a person who is, is like life has discouraged them and they have gotten depressed and down about life, right? And which, by the way, when you're depressed about life, even be careful of, once again, the medical model. People like to say all the time, like, I have depression. And I would say more, a more biblical category way to describe that would be I, am, I have the feelings of depression. But I don't have much time to talk about that. I have a whole message series I preached a couple years ago. But people who are feeling depressive feelings typically would fall into this category of small soul, faint-hearted. Okay? And it says that we have, to inc- we have to encourage those people. Also, other people that fall into this are people who have chronic physical pain. People who have suffered severe disappointments. I talked with a person uh, online this past week um, that contacted me, and they had lost like five people in the last month in their family, right? And that person was faint-hearted. They were small-souled like life. It just kind of kicked them in the teeth. These are people who um, sometimes get a terminal diagnosis, and they're just kind of worried. But in the overall, when you look at the coronavirus and everything that's going on, a type of person that fits in the faint-hearted would be a worrier, an anxious person. A person that is small-souled. A person that, that these two compound words fit right there. Now, a small-souled person is worried. They're afraid of the future. They have little faith in God's sovereignty, His goodness, His love, and wisdom. When this whole coronavirus thing started, the first message series, the first message I tried to preach was this idea about God's sovereignty and goodness and love and wisdom. And you want to know why I wanted to preach that? It was for that, that in the midst of this whole coronavirus thing, anybody that was tempted to be small-souled have that small soul, that small heart. I wanted them to experience encouragement during that time. Now, that encouraging word, paramathameo. The para, for the word encourage, means you come alongside them. And the mathameo means you comfort and console. So, how do we encourage someone who is faint-hearted, who is small of heart? We have to, we have to come alongside them and speak comfort and console to them. We have to get on the road with them in their worry and anxiety and then speak to them. Um, we need to comfort them, console them, refresh them, bless them, soothe them. We need to take biblical hope from God's word and speak it in their life. That's why in a couple of weeks I want to speak on biblical hope because I want you to be able to offer people hope from a biblical perspective, not just a shallow worldly hope that just hopes things get better. And by the way, in the text of verse 14, it says, all these three people, including encourage the faint-hearted, we're to do it with what? It begins with a P. It's not a cuss word. Patience. 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 This is the hardest thing, I'm just telling you. When you really try to encourage faint-hearted people, it's like I've had so many times where people, and even myself, I just want to go, just stop it. Stop worrying. Stop being anxious. That doesn't help those people. You know what they need? They need me to para, uh, para mathameo. They need me to para, which means get alongside them, get on the road with them, and mathameo, comfort and console with the scriptures. They need me to do both. Which, by the way, sometimes this is, we, we don't encourage people well because we think encouragement is just getting on the road with the people and don't say anything. What, remember, people aren't intrinsically good, so they, they do need gentle, patient instruction from God's word. Or we look the opposite way, like, I'm encouraging the person by, I just, I just call them and I Bible hammer them with comfort words, but I don't spend any time with them getting on the road. No, the encourage word, the mathameo means you get on the road with them and you comfort and console them. You do both. It's kind of like this. Most people who have retirement, they have retirement because they have saved a little bit and a little bit and a little bit at a time, and that little bit has compounded itself to where when they retire, hopefully... They have some kind of nest egg. This is how it works with anxious and worrisome people. This is how it works with the faint 
hearted people, the small-souled people. The way to, get, to go from a small-souled to a big-souled is small deposits of, I got on the road with them today, and I spoke from God's Word, biblical hope. I got on the, word, the road with them today and spoke with them, biblical hope. And I put these small deposits in, retirement, in the retirement account. And the more deposits I put in, the more the interest compounded until someday they go from being small-sold to what would be called a big-sold. And, and a big-sold person would... The best example I could give to you would be, the, would be from the best movie ever created in the history of ever, ever made. Y'all know what the best movie ever, 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 ever was? It's not Forrest Gump. Okay, I know. That was your first guess, wasn't it? It's Braveheart, right? That is by far the best movie ever, Braveheart, right? When you think of a person who is big-sewed, right? Not faint-heart, but big-sewed. Don't you think William Wallace? Don't you think, remember Mel Gibson in Braveheart? Like, this dude was not afraid to take on the burden. So this is what happens. This is the kind of ministry we're to do. We're to help, we're to encourage the faint-hearted, like, Come alongside them, comfort them. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, all these things, all these things, how you admonish the unruly, you help the weak, and you encourage the faint-hearted, guess what? They're all in the context of relationship. All relationship. So, like, ministry, to help people in anxiety, it takes relationship. It's all about relationship. Like, to encourage the faint-hearted, relationship. To help the weak, relationship. To um, admonish the unruly, the idle, relationship. Now, here's what I, I do want to say. This is all exhausting to do, by the way. It, it's laborious. And this is a side help. But you know this. Every time you help someone with their idleness, their unruliness, their faint-heartedness, and their weakness, guess what you're actually doing? You're glorifying God, but here's a side benefit. You're actually helping yourself. Not that that's your motivation, but I've noticed this. Anytime I have to admonish somebody, guess who, I have to, who, guess who has to get admonished first? Myself. Anytime I want to help someone weak, guess who has to be helped first? Me and my own weakness. Anytime I'm faint-hearted and I have to, to speak biblical hope to people, guess what happens when I walk away from them for that day of that encounter? Guess what? I find more biblical hope. So this is the beauty of it. Not only when you help the faint-hearted, when you encourage them, you get on the road and speak those comfort words, not only are you helping them, but in the end, in some beautiful way behind the scenes, you're actually helping yourself. This is why I tell you, discipleship is so great. Because whatever you've been discipled with, if you'll go out and do it, you'll actually walk in it. Like when I counsel people, my goal is that what I've told you, you go and tell someone else. Because if you go and tell someone else, you'll actually stay faithful and, and do the things that I've helped you with. So you'll help yourself. Now, let's end with this. Go over to 2 Thessalonians 3.16. By the way, you guys have done great. I understand that the windows are open. It probably makes it a little hotter. Are y'all hot in here right now? No? Dudes, I am sweating up a storm. That's why I wore a black shirt, because I knew I'd be under these lights. You're probably going to see Nick in like black shirts for the next several months. I'm not depressed, okay? I'm just trying to cover up the sweat marks, right? Because right now, this thing would be a puddle. And you would be put off by it. Now, here's the question, and we end. What happens when you keep doing it and you don't see any progress? <laughs> what happens when you're like, okay, Pastor Nick, I'm on the road with them. Okay, Pastor Nick, I'm comforting them. I'm doing it repeatedly. I'm doing it patiently. I don't see any progress. I'm tempted to get, like, like you got any other tools I can throw at them, Nick? Yeah. So remember, Paul's speaking about it at the end of 1 Thessalonians, how to help the faint-hearted. Now look at the end of 2 Thessalonians. He says something in his final prayer, which I think is so captivating when it comes to helping someone with worry and anxiety. If a person overcomes worry and anxiety, it's because they have peace. Now look how he prays for them as he ends, the, ends his second letter to them. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you what? Peace. What does he do? He prays for them. The word anxiety, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't pray for the peace unless that was something they, they, they issued with. He prays for peace. So what do you do? You got on the road. You've tried to comfort the faint-hearted. You tried to encourage them. You don't see as much progress. Well, here's what you do. You keep praying. Make sure you pray for them. And you keep praying for them. And you've got to depend on God that in the end, 
You put out all your efforts, but the end, it's only the, the gift of God's grace that people with worry and anxiety actually experience peace. As dependent as we are for God to save, we are as dependent on his gift of peace. Notice in the text it says this, in verse 16. Now may the Lord, he says, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. Give. It means it's a gift. It means that it's, if you get frustrated by walking on the road with the faint-hearted and comforting them with the faint-hearted, what you're thinking to yourself is, this is my gift to give. That's why you get frustrated. But you don't get frustrated when you realize in the end, this wasn't my gift to give anyways. I'm just doing this in obedience, and in the end, I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to pray with them, I'm going to pray for them, and I'm going to trust that just as God's gift of salvation is His gift to give, I can't manufacture it. I can't manufacture peace in their life. I'm just an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer, and I'm going to pray for them. Here's the thing I find all the time. When you're trying to encourage the faint-hearted, we forget to pray for them. We forget to pray over them. We forget to go to the Lord and depend on prayer. We forget to fast for them. We forget to encourage them to fast with us. We forget to grab people in the discipleship group and say, let's fast together for our brother who is, who is weak-souled right now. He's, he's downcast. And God says, it's my gift to give. And, and Paul realizes this. Just as God saved me with his gift of salvation through the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, that's the same way... It works here. Would you pray with me over this? Lord, thank you that we could have a chance to read your word and study it. There's so many people right now in our congregation that are probably faint-hearted. They're faint-hearted, they're weak-souled. Would you identify them within our body? Would you let us be able to pull up beside them? Would you let us be able to encourage them, comfort them with biblical hope? Would you let us intercede for them with prayer that depends on your gift of peace? Lord, help us in that as we close off. This is ministry relationally in the body. Would you give us wisdom in this body online here in this this auditorium that we would know how to admonish the idle, help the the weak, but especially today, encourage the faint-hearted, those downcast, the worrisome, the anxious. Lord, thank you for your word. It gives us what we need to help these people. Lord, if there's anybody here who's far from Christ today, may they lift up and call on Christ. We trust you. Bless this time as we sing to you before we dismiss. In Jesus' name, amen.